the best way to see an artist work is quietly in a gallery where you can actually have a conversation around that work and with a gallery. So I think this is where, this is maybe a, a little old school, but it's sort of the way I kind of learned along the way and, and what was challenging and stimulating to me. Welcome to Collect Wisely, an ongoing series of podcasts in which we sit down with people who care deeply about art to discuss their passion for collecting. Today we are speaking with Howard Drachowski from Dallas, a lifelong Texan. Howard, along with his wife Cindy, has played a profound role in catapulting Dallas into a leading center for the collection and presentation of international contemporary art. The Rachofsky Collection has great depth in post-war art with a particular strength in American and European minimalism, Italian arte povera, and Japanese gutai, of which they've assembled the most extensive collection in the United States. Through various philanthropic endeavors, the Rachofskys have transformed the arts in Dallas, in addition to serving on many boards of cultural institutions. Howard and Cindy, along with the Hoffmans and the Roses, have pledged their collections in, in, in their entirety to the Dallas Museum of Art. Before we begin our interview, I'd like to share our vision for Collect Wisely. This is an initiative we've wanted to do for quite some time, in which we question the nature of collecting and connoisseurship in the 21st century, and through doing so, hope to inspire a new generation of collectors and individuals committed to making a vital and meaningful investment in our common cultural future. My name is Sean Kelly, and I have had a gallery in New York since 1991. Each Collect Wisely episode will bring you personal stories from the perspective of an individual collector, where we delve into their passion for collecting, what drives them and what inspires them. Howard, welcome to Collect Wisely. Thank it's you. It's a great pleasure to have you here. Happy to be here. We've been, we've known each other for a very long time. We've been friends for a very long time. It's a Multiple decades, yeah, yes. Yeah, we're prepared to admit to. It's a huge pleasure to have you on Collect Wisely. Uh, I know you to be an extraordinarily passionate and uh, smart collector who has, um, the collection's gone through a number of iterations and focuses over the years. But I, what I'd like to do in starting is take you right back to the beginning of, of it uh, and talk about how you got started as a collector a little bit. Because I read somewhere, this I did not know about you, but I read somewhere in an interview that your grandfather was a blacksmith. Correct. And your father ran a pawn shop. Correct. How does a kid from Texas whose father was a blacksmith, who, who, sorry, whose grandfather's a blacksmith, whose father was a, a, a pawn shop, uh, proprietor end up with one of the most important contemporary art collections in the world. What's that journey? I don't know. It's random walk through the universe. You know, you never, you never know. It's an algorithm of some sort. I There's suspect. nothing random about what you do, Howard. So come on. You know, I never really had a background in the visual arts uh, or performing arts, for that, for that matter. Uh, by education, I went to the University of Pennsylvania undergraduate school, Wharton School. And I went to law school at the University of Texas at Austin with the intention of practicing securities law. Um, and I was a singularly unsuccessful attorney. I wasn't particularly good at it. And after about a year I, of flailing away at, at, at that endeavor, um, I, along, so sort of in p parallel lives, uh, 
was a stock trader in a day when there was no technology around stock trading, and we were going back to, you know, early 70s. But this was in Dallas, this not, was in, not da in New York. Not in New York, this yeah. was in Dallas. Uh, and so I started a little stock trading business, which evolved into a hedge fund, which evolved into the way I made a living uh, from, you know, from 1970 until 2003 when I retired from the business in all candor because it was much more interesting spending time and traveling for art than it was fighting the market. Um, I started collecting, or what we would call collecting, uh, randomly being introduced to an art dealer in Dallas, a gentleman named Ralph Kahn, uh, who had a little gallery called the Contemporary Gallery. Very interesting name. Uh, and, he, and this was in the 70s or the This 80s? was in 1972, early 70s. And you could not even call it collecting then. Uh, he... Uh, I walked into the gallery, you know, by chance. We started talking, started looking. I mean, I knew the names of Matisse, Picasso, and things like that. At any rate, the earliest aspects of collecting for me, with a modest budget, of course, was uh, large editions of uh, modern master prints. So this is a very traditional thing we hear a lot, people starting with less expensive works when they're younger, they have smaller budgets and they start buying prints and multiples. Exactly, and, and very decorative things. I had a, a fondness for plastic art, but I never, never really bought the right plastic art. <laughs> it didn't get light and space in a timely way. But um, I started with him and it sort, of, it sort of evolved. We bought a few I would characterize them as C pictures uh, from A artists uh, in a more modernist and contemporary. Now we're moving a little more in the contemporary vein. Uh, very, the likes of Color Field, for example, was particularly yeah. resonant. By dint of circumstance, in the while I'm in the midst of of this relationship with him as an art dealer, I didn't know anyone else. Uh, through him, and, and in a matter of serendipity, I was introduced to the gallerist Ann Friedman, who was at Nodler. As it turned out, Ann's uh, former college roommate, or, or at, the very, at the very least a very close friend, was the, at the time, ex-wife of one of my best friends in the, in the securities business. So on a trip to New York, I, I met Ann, and Ann at the time, had just or was about to adopt a child, uh, and it was, the child was ad adopted from an agency in Fort Worth, Texas. So we started a conversation. So she was probably the first New York, New York dealer that I had any kind of relationship. And again, we're going back to, at this time, mid to late 70s. I'm, if I'm buying one thing, I'm buying a a little bit of time. What were, the, what were my choices? My choices were really things that were just sort of presented to us. Here's a work by Helen Frankenthaler. Here's a work by Adolf Gottlieb. Here's a, uh, a really uninteresting example of a Rothko. This is these very, but, but see pictures, quite frankly, in most cases. Uh, the first significant purchase came in, actually, in the late 70s. I want to say 70, ooh, i got to get this right, 79, 80, 
81, sometime in that time frame, uh, through Ralph, but interestingly also from Nodler, was a Frank Stella protractor painting. And that's the first really significant uh, art purchase I made. And at the time it was a lot of money, uh, but I was making decent money then, and this seemed really interesting. And I lived in a in a very nice house, a contemporary house, and I'm still in the decorator stage. I've got a wall; I need to fill it. And this I had a big wall, and I had a tall ceiling, so I could painting. put it. I could buy a ten-foot <coughs> painting, and so I bought that. No real. All the scholarship has really been on the run. At, you know what we call adult learning education, sort <laughs> of. You know, ebb and flow, uh, and through a, just a series of. I guess the way you sort of grow up anecdotally in the in the in the art world is you meet, I met another dealer. I met a gentleman named Nathan Kolodner who worked at Emric. Then he sadly he passed away, and I was sort of shuffled off to Dorsey Waxter, with whom I've uh, had a long-standing uh, personal and professional relationship. A great uh, great dealer uh, uh, in her own right, and a very thoughtful. Lady and a, and, you know, and, a, and a good friend, but then and you sort of get introduced here, there, and yon. Uh, and as time passed, I still think of myself as a really modest collector. First decade or so of collecting is just random walk through the universe. Someone's got a show of this or that, and and that's what you what you did. About the same is we're now moving towards the mid-80s, and I'm trying to move this narrative along because I'm not sure it's that interesting, but the mid to late... If it's not interesting, I'll interrupt with something else, trust me. Thank you. <laughs> mid to late 80s, I somehow, in the, in the course of local travels, ran across a lady named Marsha May. And Marsha May's best friend was Lois Plan. And these uh, ladies, I call them gadflies, but they lived and, and breathed art. That's all they cared about was following around. And, and they, they were, I would like to say that this is what they did uh, to keep, keep out of harm's way. And they, it was a very interesting pair of these two ladies acting in an advisory capacity to me because they sort of took me under their wing. Before anybody they... had ever heard of an art advisor. No. Oh, yeah. This, is, this, was, this was totally random. Didn't even understand what all this was about. And, you know, it was, you'd, I'd come to New York. We'd go to galleries. We'd do things. I actually met you, yeah. I think, originally. Absolutely. Uh, with Marsha and Lois. With Marsh yep. and Lois. Uh, as time went on, you could begin to... And it became clearer to me at a point in time that when the when the, those ladies walked in, the dealers ran for cover because they would they would come in and they would literally plop down in a gallery and the people in the in the and the galleries are trying to make a living and trying to see clients and do business, and they're just using everyone's office. This is pre cell phone. <laughs> they're using everyone's office as just sort of a, a place to hang out because this is what they're doing. This was and, this is before mobile offices or workplaces. Yeah, so exactly. they, that, oh, they yeah. were no, they were ahead is, of the curve on everything. Oh, in many ways, in many ways, for better or worse, the one thing they both did have other than the, the, the tenacity to terrorize Dallas, <laughs> uh, is that they had good eyes. They had great eyes. They really could, they, they would introduce you to really yep. interesting artists. And they were very, very much on the leading edge. Yeah, very much cutting edge and, and fresh 
material. And, uh, you know, and again, I did not have a big budget, but they were sort of my titular advisors. I credit, or I'd like to think, that when I became a collector formally, in my own mind, it's when the concept of building the house developed. Yeah. I live in a house that was designed by Richard Myers, the only house that he's designed in that part of the world at that time. Um, and, you know, it, it was incumbent on, upon me to, you know, because I did collect, I did have a was going to have a place to show art. So by well, let's let, let me interject there please. because this is not this is not for people who are listening. This is not a regular house. I mean, we need to be clear about this. This was a single bedroom bachelor pad, yes. which was twelve or fifteen thousand square feet. It was about eleven thousand feet. Richard yes. Meyer, one of the most prominent, important Richard Meyer house uh, buildings he's ever made. Um, absolutely revolutionary in in a way in terms of what it meant and uh, foreboded for for your involvement with Dallas because if I'm correct Dallas to that point had very much been uh, you know people had their treasures in homes that were very much inward looking and you come along and you build something completely atypical which is essentially a transparent glass box structure that you're going to put your collection in and a single bedroom house. And it was a completely new way of thinking, not only about living uh, in that community, but also about how you were gonna live with your art. Well, as I say, somehow in this osmotic process, art became more and more relevant to my life and become a, became more and more <clears throat> a significant part of, of my life. Uh, and I was a bachelor at this point in time. This is before I met Cindy. And, uh, and this house embodied uh, just almost, again, a degree of serendipity. I'd only interviewed one architect, and that was Richard. Uh, and then I was shocked that he would even do a house because I, I knew he did had done historically a few houses, but he had just was about to get he literally just had got by the time I met him he had just received the commission the biggest private commission in the world to do the Getty yeah. and I assumed that he would never want to fool with this you know little residence but he actually enjoyed that as a laboratory and he put two really talented young architects on the team you know to to help um, and it was a long building process started a pro the, the actual building started in 93 and was finished in 96 so that's a pretty long but I'm now I'm collecting more actively because I am now when I have a vessel in which to to show the work to friends, family, community, um, and I also am more and more engaged and involved in in what's going on. Along about and this is in 1996 when the house was finished. Uh, Richard had a young lady named Andrea Schwann do public relations for him, and she now does public relations for galleries and architects, but that was really her specialty, to do the, mm -hmm. the, the PR for <clears throat> new, new buildings that architects did. And, and, and in her travels uh, as a journalist and, a, and in her profession, she ran across Alan Schwartzman, whom she didn't know, but she got to know well, who at the time was spent most of his time as a writer, a curator. He had, been a, he had worked for Barbara Gladstone at one time as a, in a gallery. He was the arguably the first employee at the new museum 
Marsh Tucker, mm. you know, literally created this thing, and Alan was there. So he had had a, a very diverse and, and, and eclectic background, and the concept of advising, I don't think, was really in the yeah. forefront. He was happy to talk about it, and he inter- did lots of journalistic things, interviews and, and about art, but was not a, did, there was no formal arrangement. At any rate, uh, Andrea introduced me to Alan. Alan came down, we visited it, we hit it off. What I really appreciated about his approach to things is that it wasn't, well, you need to buy this and this and this and this. It was about, let's sit down and think about this. Let's spend a reasonable amount of time, a year if possible, looking, going to museums, going to galleries, going to a fair. Let's just think about what is it that you really like about this? What, what part of, the, of collecting is interesting? What aspect of collecting is really interesting to you? So you could argue that um, in many respects, Alan kind of introduced a rigor or a discipline or a sort of architecture to your thinking about, conceptually about what being a collector meant and what a collection could be. I think that's perfectly accurate. I think it's exactly the case. And I think that in our early travels, well, the, the plan was very informal and the, the budgeting was relatively modest, but the idea was to let's not be buying, let's, let's think. And, let, and let's try to form, at least in a, in a loose way, what it is that, that you're doing. And he, so of course the first time we meet, he comes and we go through the house and he sees what's up on the walls. <coughs> and was and, he saying to you at that point, why have you got this, or why did you buy that? Or was he saying we need to edit this, or was he being well, much I, more subtle than that? I think he was, he, Alan is very subtle when yeah. it comes to that. He will not say, He's no, not you shouldn't. It's not, yeah. the, 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 go, the goal was not to, to, to beat you down. The yeah. goal was to, Lift to you see, up. see if, there is, if, if there's any there, there. Yeah. Now, yeah. Oftentimes, I'm sure you run across people that, that really don't want to be told, and at the end of the day, they don't really want to learn. <laughs> but the, 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 the approach he took, I thought, was incredibly rational because he could, as it began to unfold, and it unfolded relatively quickly, he... Um, said we started as our starting point philosophically and conceptually was the building, the house, the Meyer building in and of itself. This is a piece of art. This is a post-minimal manifestation of an, of an artistic aesthetic. You clearly like it because you live in it. Yeah. What artworks complement that? What are the artists, who are the artists uh, in which this would reside comfortably in this building. And so we naturally gravitated towards American minimalism. Yeah. This was, it wasn't a great leap, but this was a per- perfectly logical direction to go. And th- that was really the beginning of uh, making a specific attempt to focus on that. Now we also, again, where it gets, because this is not just following a rigid path, this is allowing for some free form as well. We're fascinated by issues which at the time were becoming coming to the forefront, now they're even more apparent, uh, these issues of identity. This was right AIDS crisis, this was during civil rights, this was during gay rights issues, this was a, a, a women's rights, this is the big early a moment in time when these movements were beginning to have real meaning. And there were artworks that 
that reflected this in a very significant way. And so we really allowed the collection to, to drift, if you will, in two directions. One is the lineage of the minimalist object and that the aesthetic of simplicity and refinement. And the other was this sort of issues of identity and the more figurative work, if you will, that, that, that moved in a, in a slightly different direction. But the, <clears throat> interestingly about that moment, Howard, I think now with hindsight, we can also recognize that yes, those were very prominent uh, directions that were emerging in the 80s, the late 80s particularly, mm -hmm. um, middle to late 80s. But the other thing that was emerging at the same time that I don't think we, we all recognize quite as early and we now see with, with hindsight, it's much easier to recognize, is that there was starting to be attention paid to the fact that art was not just being made in Europe and America, that, there, that art was being made all over the world. And to no small extent, it had been excluded from the kind of official trajectory of the Western canon. Of course. Uh, and so we were starting to find merging markets in Russia, in, in, in Brazil, in you know, in, in Asia, etc. Um, and one of the things that I, I think is particularly interesting about, about your collection, because you've, you've described it in a way as if you set off on this path and, you know, very purposefully pursued a, a course. But I, I know that it, it has sort of evolved very much for you as part of your life. But something that you, you did do, which was really quite extraordinary at that moment, was you looked at Gutai, for instance, which is an art movement in Japan, which had very little exposure uh, in America or American museums, and you did a deep dive into Gutai. Well, I had, I, again, you're invariably, if, if you're fortunate, you're influenced by people who have both knowledge and, and skills. And Alan didn't know Gutai, or, nor did I, until we wandered into, uh, uh, a gentleman's house in California from whom we were actually buying, uh, he was selling some, some works and we bought a, were buying a, a, an Arta Povera work, which was another strain of the, of the collection. Again, to back, to back up just, uh, just mm. briefly, uh, Amer American minimalism was the logical beginning, but the evolution to the same time period in Europe was seamless. It became clear to us that the the, the modern Italian masters, or, or what we I call modern masters, the Fontanas, yeah. the Burris, the Manzonis, these were artists with a similar kind, a similar kind of idea, but with a, a aesthetic that totally resonated within the context of what we were yeah. doing, but wasn't collected in America at that point in time, and. Quite frankly, it was also more economical because it, you weren't fighting for the Judd stack, but you, you could you could for sure. the same you could buy a great Fontana, and this was a, a this sort of was a logical extension. And the Gutai, the, then moving to the Far East, the dint of circumstance of of seeing our first Gutai work in this 90, late 90s sure. time period and not being able to reconcile what the heck it was. It was one random work, a Shimamoto painting sitting in a, that he still owns, sitting in a collector's home that was one of the most radical looking artworks I had ever seen and Alan had ever seen and we didn't really have context. Yeah. And as it turns out, as we began to, and actually bought our first work, 
there is a, a fellow who I also I consider a collector advisor, a man named Josh Mack, who actually traveled to Japan. He really had a good understanding of this. And he was really our first intro into this material. So when you, when you, the shock, you know, the shock of this object in this collector's home that you really didn't understand, didn't have a context for, how did you respond to that? Did you set about sort of researching Gutai or did you just get, get you got on a plane, you went to Japan and started to learn about it? It's did actually- you, Did you do it through buying? I mean, how did you educate your eye? Actually, what you did is you basically didn't do anything for a few years because it was one of those things that, oh, that's curious and interesting. And then you didn't think about it until three or four years later. But it kept tickling away. It yeah. kept tickling away. We bought our first work from Josh in a very modest, small, little, little painting. And that became, that sort of triggered our inquiries. It turns out along the same time, we, I got to be more friendly with the dealer, Fergus McCaffrey. Fergus was very influential. Uh, spoke Japanese, traveled there regularly, and he was beginning to work in trying to get that material better known. Almost parallel to this is sort of a next generation uh, understanding of the Monoha movement in Japan. So once we started down a movement, and again, it resonated with Artipopa. All these things sort of as you begin to look, and back to your original observation, is everything, our understanding in the West was almost every, it was dominant by, by the Museum of Modern Art. That, that was the canon, that's what, what laid it down. That was a point of view that was particularly American. It was allowed to branch ever so slowly to incorporate European masters, but it was not at the same rate until, until later. And now, then, by, by extension, you began to look to the Far East. You began to look to Eastern Europe. You began to look to South America. And all of this began, the notion that the canon was in the process of being rewritten. Changing, yeah. You know? And did you, did you branch out from uh, Gutai to Korea or to yes. China? To Korea, not to China. Uh, because the thought process for us, if I can try to suggest, is, is that uh, the, the logical extension of looking at these things, once you begin to look at a region or an area, at a time period when we weren't in the internet age, we were a pre-internet age, so everybody in these places knew what everyone else was doing now, or know what everyone else yep. is doing now. If you, you could make a painting today and every, the world knows about it tomorrow. Back or then- Or washed the, your painting, actually. Yeah, yeah. but, but, but it, back then, the, the, because things moved a little slower, communication was, was more primitive. Um, still, people had knowledge of what was going on in the world, but there, were, there was an aesthetic zeitgeist going on that wasn't necessarily imitative or derivative, no. but was actually original and came from the same thing. When Gutai was first presented in America, and there were the, it, 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 contemporaneous when it existed, which was in the late 50s, uh, I can't recall the specific gallery, but a very major gallery at the time that, that showed the work couldn't sell any of it because it was perceived to be third generation or derivative of Babex. It yeah. looked like that. 
in all candor, it had nothing to do with that. It came out of performance. Yeah, it's all performance. It was all, it was pre-Capro. It was all, it was, this was where performance came from. And as you began to understand it, the source, and by the way, Gutai came from Osaka, not Tokyo. So it was, it was like the center of the art world was L.A. and not New York. You know, it was, you you know, L.A. didn't, L.A. artists didn't even get their due and, you know, until significant so, after the New York. So artists. in a way, it required a sort of rethinking of the entire narrative. I mean, you're, you're, you're talking about um, both within Japan and outside Japan, mm-hmm. you know, the, the influence of your time. Because you're not just talking about the fact that uh, you stumbled upon or discovered something which had been largely overlooked. But, you know, there was the, uh, there's a sense that the whole narrative of the Western trajectory of telling the story of contemporary art had to change. Correct. You know, and there are a few institutions that have tackled it. I would say, particularly the Guggenheim, has been very much at the forefront of, yeah. you know, and their curatorial team at the forefront of, of, of exposing us to other op- alternatives so, and presenting this material. And the material is really pretty wonderful. The challenge is that it's hard to find great material because a lot of it is, and it's not even shown very much in Japan. They may have three Gutai artworks up and they may have dozens and dozens in their collection, but they don't, they show other things. Let me ask you about a a parallel conversation because you talked earlier about, in the 80s, how there was a very powerful narrative about identity and uh, and the AIDS crisis, obviously, and pushing back against uh, against that great plague, um, and there was uh, there, there was a kind of political with a small p sense of, of undercurrent in the 80s. We're now at a point in the 21st century, uh, in the second decade of the 21st century, and we're going through a, a very powerful moment where um, overlooked communities. Uh, women artists who have been very, very much mis- underrepresented in, in public collections and in galleries. Um, estates of, of women artists are getting a lot more prominence. Uh, African-American artists are being paid a lot more attention to. Um, there are lots of other communities that should be paying attention to. It, you know, Malaysia, the Philippines, Singapore. Australia, other other art communities that we really haven't paid that much attention to. But in this moment, we're in a very powerful moment now um, of people paying far more attention, as they should, to work by women and to work by um, minority communities. Is that something that you feel is something your collection should be paying attention to? Does it, or does it not quite fit for you? Well, it does fit, but it fit. I never could understand that we use this expression, women artists, or black artists, or Latin artists. We happen to have started and evolved from two specific countries, two specific cultures, specifically Italy and and Japan, because of the way it resonated within the context of the collection. I've always collected if it, if it fit within the concept of the yeah. thing, women, black, sure. Native American, I, I collect art. I don't, yeah. I, I don't categorize it. The difficult, the reason I've been a little slower on the uptake here, even though the, the, that I do have artists, uh, you know, of color represented, for example, 
is that I never looked at it as a black artist or a brown artist or this, and I'm appreciative of the fact that it's now come to the forefront, so you are seeing more work presented, and I think it's perfectly wonderful. It, and we do have those artists represented. Yeah. I mean, I, I completely agree with you because um, I've never thought, I mean, we have historically represented a lot of women in our mm -hmm. program uh, from the very beginning of the program. I n have never thought of them as being women artists. I've only thought of them as being good artists. Mm -hmm. and, and I completely agree with you. I mean, I think it's one of those strange, uh, it's, it's one of those strange things where, um, we applaud the fact that the the balance is being redressed, but the you know, the sort of formal categorizations of it are very uncomfortable. It's insulting. Yeah, I mean, it's. I think it, it's insulting it just, to the artist. Yes, it's, and I don't think that's fair. I think that, you know, you you, the artist is good or not, and and right now, of course, because we're we we, we in the art world operate like a no different than 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 other herds. <laughs> <laughs> there are there are artists coming out of the woodwork that are are making lots and lots of art right now yeah. and and they're being marketed as black or female or whatever and I'm not sure anyone stopped and and really done the the, the thought process of, of of analyzing what is really good and what isn't now there's there's this wonderful traveling show that's had this huge response the soul of a nation has yep. been it's the right show at the right time and creates a great checklist uh and i love the fact that artists who have essentially been closeted for four decades are now uh Praised and 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 giving given their their due. Those that are that that are really good artists, that work is 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 wonderful. Well, I think we would all support and applaud the lifting up of any community which has been ignored for a long period of time, and been excluded from the major narratives in the art world um, as being that's an inequity and it should be addressed. But I think your point really is a very important one that at the end of the day, it's not about the categorization or, or the frame that, that, that one positions these things within. It's actually about the quality of the, the individual artist. Yes. And that's what's gonna, that, that is what's going to survive the test of time. It has to be really high quality work. At the end of the day, that's what we're, that's, the, and quite frankly, we'll be long gone before that will, will, be will ultimately be determined. Yeah. You know, if you think so, about it. So I want to ask you, um, you know, I, I, I've always been very impressed that you had the courage to, to step uh, in a way to not just continue the trajectory. I think with, with, with your collecting um, activity, you were, on a, you were on a track which was um, sort of, it could have just ended up being very predictably, let's continue. We've, we've grown out of modernism, we've gone into minimalism, let's continue with contemporary in a very straight line. Mm. But I think one of the things that's incredibly kind of impressive to me is that at exactly the moment that one could have said, yes, that's what the collection will do, you took a swerve uh, towards Arte Povera and then another swerve towards Gutai um, uh, and very courageously went off and kind of became very involved with those different areas of, of of collecting work, which was very very complementary to the core of the collection. 
What uh, uh, is there another swerve coming? What are you looking at now? I mean, is there, is there, is is there something else we've missed that you haven't? Well, no, I think this is what this is what becomes this. Uh, the narcotic of collecting. The nar- is that, oh, I love this. The narcotic is of that, collecting. Is so that, a dealer's pushers? Is that our role? No, I don't think you <laughs> I think I think we're we're hooked. The collector is hooked. And it's it's okay, I'm doing this. Now, oh gosh, we've just discovered this. Bye, 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 bye. And then, okay, we've done that. Now let's go over to here. Now let's go over to here. Right. I'm not so sure I know what the next is. One of the reasons to come to an art fair, for example, and I like going to galleries, not fairs, in all candor, but I think fairs are great to go visit with people you don't get to see often. But I I think that the best way to see an artist's work is quietly in a gallery where you can actually have a conversation Around that work and and uh, and with the gallerist, I think this is where, this is maybe a, a little old school, but it's sort of the way I kind of learned along the way, and 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 what was what was challenging and and, and stimulating to me. I don't. I, I came to this art fair, this particular moment in time, to kind of look at what else was going on and what 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 might be really instructive and intuitive. And more interestingly, what I think I discovered personally is it's more about looking back on some missing pieces rather than a generic overlooked movement, if you will. I think it's, this is a really interesting artist that really hasn't had his or her due at this point, but but look how beautifully this fits within when, what you're, you're thinking. When you go to an art fair somewhere in the world, um, do you have, when you're walking through, do you have antenna for picking up? I know that that's not what you're looking for. You're looking for these, for these moments, for these particular works or for these, for, for these missing pieces of the puzzle in a way. But do you pick up a sort of zeitgeist of, at any given moment of, of a current, I mean, you might go to an art fair and say, this is what's happening. This is what I'm seeing most at this art fair. I mean, how attuned are you to the, those subtle shifts of what's occurring in the market? When I'm not sure I am, in all candor. I, I think it's, I, I'm a little intimidated by the art fairs because there's so much, so much sensual bombardment of, in, uh, of visual material and nasty lights shining down and thousands of bodies and and it's 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 a very great skill one i do not possess to be able to walk through a fair and identify the one or two really great things it's one of the wonders you know i don't get the time to do that with alan as often anymore because he's got so many clients and is so busy but when he goes through and he'll see he can look through booths and then will identify this one little random object and, and and Gavin Delahunty is a good friend of mine and uh, curator in Dallas that, that that he could go through and identify one or two really special things I think that's a real gift I don't have that particular gift I as I say for me the art fairs for the most part is this is more of a general catching up with people it's a social experience if by the way you see something that that intrigues you or that that's fresh or that resonates within the context of what you want to do and you can afford it at the time uh, then all all the better but that's not that's not the primary reason you know for us again I'm not sure I think about us so much as 
being collectors. This is an interesting moment in time for Cindy and me. We've just finished our 20th anniversary of Two by Two for AIDS and art. This is a, you know, a, a cause, two causes we have celebrated for a long time. We've raised a ton of money thanks to the good graces of artists, dealers, and, and a generous community. Uh, and it's, been, it's a moment of reflection for us because for, we're in the process of passing the torch, uh, the beginning process of passing the torch to John and Lisa Runyon, yep. who are great friends and have been with us every step of the way. But it's time for it's time to kind of step into the background and not be, be the, the figurehead, if you will, of this. So for us, it's been about it's, it's not taking a victory lap, but it's really reflecting on some things that we've, we've been able to do and wonderful relationships that we've been able to develop. We feel like we're part of an ecosystem. So the collecting is great fun, and I get to play amateur curator because it's hopefully going to go to the museum. But it's um, it's it's more about the, it's more about the interaction. I miss some of the the personal connections that that we used to have at these when it was a little simpler. Yeah, I, I would I could spend literally ten hours talking to you about this, and and we we don't have that luxury, and we've got to blast through things. But I would really be remiss if I did not uh, bring to everybody's attention your collection, which. We've talked about, you know, we could talk about a lot more, which has been a very personal journey, is remarkable in another respect as well for me, and it's singularly uh, Im impressive. You have used the collection to lift your community in Dallas right onto the front burner of the international art scene, along with some colleagues, with the Hoffmans and the Roses. Those, and others. And, and others in Dallas. But your three collections were the principal driving forces. Uh, and you did something quite remarkable. The three of, the three of you, the three family Families, collections, yeah. it were, banded together and very early on pledged your collections to the Dallas Museum. Not only did you do that, you've talked about two by two, you've raised hundreds of millions of dollars for AIDS research and for, for supporting uh, of medical research through Two by Two uh, for over 20 years in Dallas. Your community engagement with your collection, uh, also opening up the house, opening the warehouse as an adjunct to the house or as a complement to the house, a huge commitment to making sure that children in Dallas can come into your home and see the collection, not have to travel outside of their own community to see cutting edge contemporary art. I mean, these are remarkable achievements. Those three alone are extraordinary, and, and there's so many other. And I don't mean to shine your shoes, but <laughs> I think those, just those three, without all the others, have totally transformed our notion of Dallas. As, as a city, as, as you know, a, a part of the community in Texas. And you've, you've put it on an international stage at the forefront of people thinking about collecting. I mean, that is an extraordinary achievement. Well, you're very kind to say that. I think that we get probably more credit than we deserve. I don't think you do at all. I think you deserve all the credit you get <laughs> and more. Because it, it is, you know, it's not something that one sees in every community where there can be very many disparate uh, interests that do not come together 
and coalesce around an institution and lift not only the institution, but the whole level of thinking about art within, within a community, within a region of a country. It's been, a, it's been wonderful because it was, it was fertile territory and it happened organically. It happened because it, things last for a period of time if, the, if it's the right thing at the right place and at the, the right time and it's evolved and it's, it, it, it continues to evolve because of this, this sort of collective generosity and this curiosity and it almost parallels in a funny way if you think about it, the entire globalization of the art world. Absolutely. And if you think about the last two decades, art has gone from this little boutique where we used to go to a thing and we used to have these little cocktail parties and you knew the, the other 50 collectors and you knew the 40 or 50 dealers. And it's, it's now turned out to be pop. It is pop culture. It's, yeah. the, it's the Warholian 15 minutes. Well, uh, your, for all your, of us, your your career as it, I mean, it's the wrong term, of course, but your your personal uh, career as a collector has almost exactly paralleled the growth of contemporary art market. I mean, if you think about the seventies, there were so few dealers working with mm -hmm. contemporary art at, at that point. I mean, pretty much even the nascent Paula Cooper, who's celebrating a 50th, 50th anniversary yeah. this year, which is an extraordinary and remarkable achievement, and a few others, Leo Castelli, Ileana Sonnenbend, etc. I mean, it really has paralleled the growth of contemporary art market. So you've gone from, you know, you've seen it from being a sort of mum and pop operation to now being a multinational global corporation. Um, and that's an extraordinary journey to have witnessed uh, and to have been part of. But it seems to me that you have made it not only an intensely personal journey through the collection, but you've also given back so much to the community that you, you, know, that you live in and have lifted that community up in a way uh, so that it is absolutely the forefront now internationally of anybody's agenda when talking about collecting and contemporary art. I mean, that's a remarkable achievement. Did you set out with that ambition, or has no, it just happened? Just happened. I, we, we, when we started the, this whole adventure... Would, would you be prepared to publish the roadmap for that? So <laughs> <laughs> you know, we've actually tried. It's, it's, an, it's interesting, because there's wonderful friends from other parts of the country. We've, we did a little tour. The, the Dee Dee Rose and Marguerite Hoffman and, and Cindy and I have gone to other communities and talked a little bit about what we did, what happened, how it happened, uh, with the idea of sharing it. It was never yeah. meant to be proprietary. It was meant to be, you know, you know, a bit of a model. Uh, you know, I can remember a wonderful, she's now a wonderful director of a museum in Chicago, uh, Madeline Grinstein. Madeline is a go-getter. She came down and took notes and wanted to know what all this was about. How do you do this? And she but really, and, and so she really, I mean, there are people that have, have looked. And, but it's and, not and, something you can bottle. I mean, it doesn't seem to be. It, no. it, what, was, what was special about, what was, what's the magic source that made Dallas so fertile for this initiative? And, and why has it worked so profoundly? Younger city relatively affluent city, growing, not, a, not an old city, a new city, um, trendy city in a way, uh, and you could, uh, 
you had an environment that was sort of ripe for this, and we could do the event. I keep coming back to the event because the event was the catalyst for it. Committing the collections was was after two by two started, but it was not very long after two by two. Two by two became an annual reason for everyone to come around and revisit the idea of art, even if you didn't like the didn't like the art. We made sure that it was the best party in town. We made we did it at the house so that it as opposed to a museum or a hotel ballroom. So it had a, a strangely personal feel, even though the house is not a very, it's a, as you pointed out earlier, it's not exactly your, you know, Cleaver house. <laughs> but it, um, it was an, annually it made people come and think and revisit. And, and, form, th- and form community. Yeah, I think that's it, and I think it it's it's it, it it has evolved because it, you you had the raw material there, you had curious, bright, educated people, and you had the aff- enough affluence for others to take hold, and you could present art this which is a little bit strange stuff. It's like if you put me in a in a science lab, I would very quickly be a, over my head in terms of trying to understand even basic rules. We've not done the best job as an art community of welcoming people to our community. We have the, the art buying process is a little mysterious. It's it's. Off, you're not talking about Dallas. You're talking about the art world. The art world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's off-putting. Sure. Going to a gallery is kind of a scary thing, and looking at these strange things on the wall. Yeah, I mean, we, this, we've talked to that. You know, we've talked about that in other uh, a lot, and I totally agree with you. I mean, we a, need to be much better at that. It, it and it's not only this kind of opportunity where someone can come and see 125 works of art on a wall with little labels to kind of give them a little bit of a guidepost uh, without without any pressure, without people successful in their own right without looking foolish because you're it's again asking me to go to a science lab and and do an experiment it's going to be i'll feel incredibly awkward it just it creates an environment where people can feel a little at ease and so and over time it, it it magnifies itself and it allows people to become more and more comfortable if you think about a restaurant you go to if you think about a any any experience or city you go to, the first time or two, it's a little. You, you, you even if you love it, you're not quite sure. natural. By the time you've gone there seven or eight times, you feel part of it. It feel it just it feels easier. And I think that a lot of the things that Two by Two has done is it's created this annual opportunity for people to come in. It's a point of get access. Get a dose of the a point of access. It's a nice expression, and it. Uh, and that's the reason it sustained itself. Yeah, because it's been a huge success and raised an awful lot of money for a very good cause. Yeah, but it has changed the community in Dallas. It, it, which it, is I think it's had a meaningful impact. Yeah. So, what, we have a number of things that we really want to talk about on on this program, and I think we, we've we've dealt with many of them. I mean, it, it talking about the collection Arte Povera and uh, Gutai, you know, really is to talk about connoisseurship and, and scholarship. Um, what I'd love to ask you is, uh, you talked a little bit earlier about, uh, um, you know, you're, you're passing the baton with two by two, um, uh, to, to John and his wife, Lisa, um, Lisa, um, it's a moment of reflection, thinking about the collection, what you've achieved. 
what advice would you give to your younger self if you met them at a reception for two <laughs> by two about how to collect and how to start collecting, how to think about collecting? You know, again, I think that it's an inquiry that comes up, you know, reasonably often. And I think it's, it's one that you can have a, a hip shot answer to. But I think in all candor, the most important thing to do is give yourself permission to take some time to look and to learn and to, to not be in a hurry. I think if it's going to become something that's going to, that you're going to want to spend a long time with or that's going to be part of the rest of your life, uh, take the time to do a little looking. Uh, the greatest joy I had yesterday at the fair was there is a, a wonderful young man who heads a company in Dallas who's a, an avid young collector. He's 30 years old. He's incredibly bright. Uh, his name is Thomas Hartland Mackey. And we spent an hour and a half speed running through the fair together yesterday. And it was just, it was the most invigorating experience for me. I don't know if he got as much out of it as I did, but he's already a good collector. He knows, he, he knows enough. He's done the vocab, he's got the vocabulary. He's not and a novice. He, was, was he uh, looking at very different things to you? Uh, I was trying to point out things to him and why they were interesting to me. Right. As a, as a point of reference, because sometimes... It's, it's, it's easier to talk about things in front of a picture than, than sure. in a book or, or abstractly because you, you're in front of an object and you're talking about it. You like it, you don't. Why, where, who, and, when, and where was how, it done? Howard, how important for you is being in the aura in, the fr in front of the object as opposed to seeing it on your phone or somebody Instagramming it? I mean, we are in a different technological moment. We talk about it a lot. We talk about the way we receive information a lot, but for me, there's absolutely no alternative to being in the presence of the object. I think that's what we say, and I think it's true. I think, you know, I think you're perpetually surprised when you see the, on the little phone, you see the, the one inch image, and then because you can't see anymore, you, you have to take <laughs> your glasses off. But, uh, and, and then you see it in real life, I said, that's bigger than I thought. It's smaller than I thought. It's more interesting than I thought. It's not as interesting as I thought. Yeah. You gotta go look at it. It's yeah, sooner, sooner or later, I think, you know, the, the things that I have bought without seeing have, have been with my surrogate eyes of Alan. I trust his eye, I know what he likes, I know what he likes that I don't like, and I know what he likes that I do like, and I know when he opens up that box to challenge challenge me, which I appreciate, uh, it's a good thing. It's, a, it's, it's the only way that I can see enough things, because I don't live in New York. I don't go to the galleries all the time. If I get to New York six or seven times a year to get to half the shows that you put on, that's yeah. about as good as it gets. Have you ever, have you bought from an image or from now a phone and had buyer's remorse? Or do you just not not buy something unless you or Alan have stood in front of it and seen it? That's a real good question. I don't, I don't, off the top of my head, I feel like we, one of us has actually been Always in the presence yeah. of the work. Yeah. But have I had buyer's remorse? Probably. 
<laughs> you know, you sort of you, th- those are the things you wonder about because you get caught up in the emotion yeah, of things, of and, and 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 there's something also, particularly about younger artists, which I'd, which which I would like to throw in just briefly, is that, and again, I maybe this is the world of inflation, but there was a moment in time when you part of what I like to do is support a system, so I like going to the Lower East Side and. And, and there's some nice gallerists that are working really hard to yeah. try to make a living and show works, you know, from nice artists before those artists disappear into the, you know, the higher profile yeah. gallery system. But so I feel like even if I don't love something or I think I like it a lot, I'll take a chance on a young artist. I'm I'm happy to support to support the ecosystem yeah. of 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 the art machinery. But the but the price points now for engaging at that level have reached a point where they're where we were again to borrow a term from Alan. It used to be why not, and they he's it's now become why. Yeah. And I and I kind of that yeah. that I lament a little bit. It's it, it, if a, a young collector, a new collector coming on board now has a tough time because if the entry point is $15,000, that starts to add up. It's real real money. money. And and it used to be $3,500 and, and, you know, which was a, you know, a fancy dress for a party. And you'd say you didn't buy the dress, you bought the painting. And and, and I think a few years ago, there was almost a feeling that the inversion uh, of price structure towards very young artists was even more extreme. I Mm -hmm. think it has become a little bit more uh, moderate, moderate in, in the last five years. But there's a point I remember five, eight years ago when one felt that, you know, the, the, the very young and the very, very, uh, you know, emerging was even, was almost more expensive than anything else was, w- within reason, obviously. No, but you could, you could also make the case that you, which, which quite frankly is what we're doing now, I think, is we all reevaluate markets. As you go back and look at artists whose work you value, you say, do I really... <laughs> I'll give you an anecdote, forgive me, but, and, and I know this is probably highly inaccurate, but I'm gonna pretend sure. it's accurate because I wanna tell the story anyway. So we were offered a, a, a small diptych at a very expensive, big price of a very good artist and a, a good example, but more than I could afford. And somehow in the conversation, uh, you know, it was, and it was with Alan. I, either I said to him, or he said to me, "For that money, I could have bought a memling, you know, a, an old master sure. painting that I've always had this fascination for that I know nothing about. But every time I go to a museum, I, a historical museum, I always go. I'm gravitate to, towards those little friars with sure. their little yeah. haircuts, and, uh, and and that's where you start to wonder the." the the, the long history of art and the long process of art, you start making these relative value judgments. Well, and that becomes, that, that is what drives decision making now because price points have, for really great things are such that you can't have this and this. Sure. You can have this and or this and that's it. And markets over periods of time, over decades, markets change significantly. The old master market now is 
massively underpriced by comparison with contemporary art. It seems like it. Um, and, you know, for the same prices you could buy a 35-year-old, what I would describe as relatively emerging artist, you could buy a Degas drawing. So, you know, <laughs> you, know yeah, you, start I mean, to, you start to think, well, where do I want to be in this, in this conversation? Well, it's funny because we've just, you know, Dallas Museum of Art is an encyclopedic institution, but we did not, did not until Marguerite funded... Uh, just two years ago, an old master curator and an old master uh, right. collector and bought has only bought one work, put some real money in there from the sale of a of a of a work that she had, uh, and those funds went to the museum for the purpose of helping to build an old master, even albeit small, even a small old master. So I think thing. I've managed to finally trap you into exposing where you're going now with the collection. It's towards Memling. Memling, well, you know, except I, I, I was talking to a contemporary of yours uh, in the contemporary market, and he says, you know, I know a little bit about that. You can't buy a Memling for that, so don't worry about it. <laughs> Well, I said, well, maybe if you see one, let me know. Well, this is, uh, well, if you get a TAFAF, you'll see one. Yeah, I know, we do. I literally, it's wonderful. <laughs> I, I mean, just, it was I remarkable was... at TAFAF Spring Fair this year to go onto one booth and two, and see two Bruegels for mm -hmm. sale. Mm -hmm. I mean, I was like just absolutely, and that was on a booth where there were, you know, there were a number of uh, great 15th and 16th century uh, Reformation paintings. It's fascinating. So, so uh, that brings us to, to, a perfect place for me to ask you my final question. And that is the uh, same question we ask uh, everybody who appears because the answer is always so interesting and diverse. And you may already have answered this, I hope not. I hope you'll come up with a different uh, response. But if you, had, if you were forced to choose one artwork to spend the rest of eternity with, <laughs> um, it doesn't have to be something in your collection. It can be any artwork from anywhere in the world in any public collection something, just the, the single artwork that you would want to spend eternity gazing upon, what would that be? That's a fascinating question. I guess it's a, a bit of a trap as well. Um, you know, you wrestle with trying to be clever, but I think about four years ago at Christie's, they had this Cycladic figure that arguably is the first modern artwork, three-dimensional artwork. Um, and it was priced less than the Membling, you know? I, th I think something like that, th that was one of those moments in time when you, it's not something you expect to see, but you go and you see this beautiful, it's this little bitty four or five inch figure. And I, I think something like that, which sort of, because it, I think it ties you to history. And, and Cycladic figures are sort of very modern, but completely timeless. Yes. And I think that that's what, uh, that's the, that's, that's part of the great seduction for me. So that's a wonderful place to finish. I'm going to imagine you sitting with your Cycladic figure, enjoying, <laughs> enjoy, enjoying eternity. Um, Howard, it's been an incredible pleasure to have you on Collect it's, Wisely. Thank you so much. I wish we had another 10 mine, hours you know? because we could fill them very easily. Thank you very much, Sean. It's I been very such much a appreciate pleasure. it. Thank, Thank you. Thanks for listening to today's episode. 
Collect Wisely can be found on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Overcast, and Google Play. You can also find our episodes on our YouTube page. Just search Sean Kelly Gallery. Please be sure to subscribe to get the freshest episodes when they release. And if you really like the show, please give us a review or drop a comment. Or you can email us at info at sky.com. You can also follow the Sean Kelly Gallery at Sean Kelly NY on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Cheers! Thank you.